Chapter Twenty Four, Part Two, of Run to Earth, a novel, by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gail Mattern. Chapter Twenty Four, Part Two. I am weary of my part. Sir Reginald Eversleigh played his part well during the few days in which he remained at the rectory. No mourner could have seemed more sincere than he and everybody agreed that the spendthrift baronet exhibited an unaffected sorrow for his cousin's fate, which proved him to be a very noble-hearted fellow, in spite of all the dark stories that had been told of his youth. Before leaving Hallgrove, Reginald took care to make himself thoroughly acquainted with his cousin's plans for the future. Douglas, with ten thousand a year, was of course a more valuable acquaintance than he had been as the possessor of half that income even if there had been no dark influence ever busy weaving its secret and fatal web. "'You will go back to your old life in London, Douglas, I suppose,' said Sir Reginald. "'There you will soonest forget the sad affliction that has befallen you. In the hurrying whirlpool of modern life there is no leisure for sorrow.' "'Yes, I shall come to London,' answered Douglas. "'And you will occupy your old quarters?' decidedly and we shall see as much of each other as ever eh douglas said sir reginald you must not let poor lionel's fate prey upon your mind you know my dear fellow or your health as well as your spirits will suffer you must go down to hilton house and mix with the old set again that sort of thing will cheer you up a little yes answered douglas i know how far i may rely upon your friendship reginald I shall place myself quite in your hands. My dear fellow, you will not find me unworthy of your confidence. I ought not to find you so, Reginald. Sir Reginald looked at his kinsman thoughtfully for a moment, fancying there was some hidden meaning in Douglas Dale's words. But the tone in which he had uttered them was perfectly careless, and Reginald's suspicion was dispelled by the frank expression of his face. Sir Reginald left Hallgrove a few days after the fatal accident in the hunting-field, and went back to his London lodging, which seemed very shabby and comfortless after the luxury of Hallgrove Rectory. He did not care to spend his evenings at Hilton House, for he shrank from hearing Paulina's complaints about her loneliness and poverty. The London season had not yet begun, and there were few dupes whom the gamester could victimize by those skilful manoeuvres which so often helped him to success. It may be that some of the victims had complained of their losses, and the villa inhabited by the elegant Austrian widow had begun to be known amongst men of fashion as a place to be avoided. Reginald Eversleigh feared that it must be so, when he found the few young men he met at his club rather disinclined to avail themselves of Madame Dursky's hospitality. "'Have you been to Fulham lately, Cavisham?' he asked of a young lordling, who was master of a good many thousands per annum, but not the most talented of mankind. "'Fulham!' exclaimed Lord Cavisham. "'What's Fulham?' "'Ah, to be sure, I remember. Place by the river. Very nice. Villas, boat races, and that kind of thing. Let me see.' "'Bishops and that kind of church-going people live at Fulham, don't they?' "'I thought you would have remembered one person who lives at Fulham, "'a very handsome woman who made a strong impression upon you.' "'Did she? 
"'Did she, by Jove?' cried the Viscount. "'And yet, upon my honour, Eversleigh, I can't remember her. "'You see, I know so many splendid women, "'and splendid women are perpetually making an impression upon me. "'And I am perpetually making an impression upon splendid women. "'It's mutual, by Jove, Eversleigh, quite mutual. "'And pray, who is the lady in question?' "'The beautiful Viennese, Paulina Dursky.' The lordling made a wry face. "'Paulina Dursky. Yes, Paulina is a pretty woman,' he murmured languidly. "'A very pretty woman, and you're right, Eversleigh. She did make a profound impression upon me. But, you see, I found the impression cost me rather too much. Hilton House is the nicest place in the world to visit, but if a fellow finds himself losing two or three hundred every time he crosses the threshold—' "'You can be scarcely surprised if he prefers spending his evenings "'where he can enjoy himself a little more cheaply. "'However, perhaps you'll hardly understand my feelings on this subject, Eversleigh, "'for if I remember rightly, you were always a winner when I played at Madame Dursky's.' "'Was I?' said Sir Reginald, with the air of a man "'who endeavours to recall circumstances that are almost forgotten.' The lordling was not altogether without knowledge of the world and of his fellow-men, and there had been a certain significance in his speech which had made Eversleigh wince. "'Did I win when you were there?' he asked carelessly. "'Upon my word, I have forgotten all about it.' "'I haven't,' answered Lord Caversham. "'I bled pretty freely on several occasions when you and I played écarté.' "'and I have not forgotten the figures on the cheques "'I had the pleasure of signing in your favour. "'No, my dear Eversleigh, "'although I consider Madame Dursky the most charming of women, "'I don't feel inclined to go to Hilton House again.' "'Ah,' said Sir Reginald with a sneer, "'there are so few men who have the art of losing with grace. "'We have no Staverdales nowadays. "'The man who could win eleven thousand at a coup "'and regret that he was not playing high,' since in that case he would have won millions, is an extinct animal. No doubt of it, dear boy. The gentlemanly art of losing placidly is dying out, and I confess that, for my part, I prefer winning, answered Lord Caversham coolly. This brief conversation was a very unpleasant one for Sir Reginald Eversleigh. It told him that his career as a gamester must soon come to a close, or he would find himself a disgraced and branded wretch, avoided and despised by the men he now called his friends. It was evident that Viscount Caversham suspected that he had been cheated, nor was it likely that he would keep his suspicion secret from the men of his set. The suspicion, once whispered, would speedily be repeated by others who had lost money in the saloons of Madame Dursky. Hints and whispers would swell into a general cry, and Sir Reginald Eversleigh would find himself tabooed. The prospect before him looked black as night, a night illumined by one lurid star, and that was the promise of Victor Carrington. "'It is time for me to have done with poverty,' he said to himself. "'Lord Caversham's insolent innuendos would be silenced if I had ten thousand a year. It is clear that the game is up at Hilton House. Paulina may as well go back to Paris or Vienna. The pigeons have taken fright.' and the hawks must seek a new quarry. Sir Reginald drove straight from his club to the little cottage beyond Malta Hill. He scarcely expected to find the man whom he had last seen at an inn in Dorsetshire, but 
to his surprise he was conducted immediately to the laboratory where he discovered victor carrington bending over an alembic which was placed on the top of a small furnace the surgeon looked up with a start and reginald perceived that he wore the metal mask which he had noticed on a former occasion who brought you here asked victor impatiently the servant who admitted me answered reginald i told her i was your intimate friend and that i wanted to see you immediately she therefore brought me here she had no right to do so however no matter when did you return i scarcely expected to see you in town as soon i scarcely expected to find you hereafter our meeting at frimley replied the baronet there was nothing to detain me in the country i came back some days ago and have been busy with my old studies in chemistry you still dabble with poisons i perceive said sir reginald pointing to the mask which victor had laid aside on a table near him every chemist must dabble in poisons since poison forms an element of all medicines replied victor and now tell me to what new dilemma of yours do i owe the honour of this visit you rarely enter this house except when you find yourself desperately in need of my humble services what is the last misfortune i have just come from the phoenix where i met caversham i thought i should be able to get a hundred or so out of him at ecarte to-night but the game is up in that quarter he suspects that he has been singularly unfortunate he knows it no man who was not certain of the fact would have dared to say what he said to me he insulted me carrington insulted me grossly and i was not able to resent his insolence never mind his insolence answered victor in six months your position will be such that no man will presume to insult you so the game is up at hilton house is it i thought you were going on a little too fast and pray what is to be the next move what can we do paulina's creditors are impatient and she has very little money to give them my own debts are too pressing to permit of my helping her and such being the case the best thing she can do will be to get back to the continent as soon as she can on no account my dear reginald exclaimed carrington madame jersky must not leave hilton house why not never mind the why i tell you reginald she must stay you and i must find enough money to stave off the demands of her sharpest creditors i have not a sixpence to give her answered the baronet i can scarcely afford to pay for the lodging that shelters me and can still less afford to lend money to other people not even to the woman who loves you and whom you profess to love said victor with a sneer what a noble-minded creature you are sir reginald eversleigh a pattern of chivalry and devotion however madame Dursky must remain that is essential to the carrying out of my plans if you will not find the money i know who will and pray who is this generous knight-errant so ready to rush to the rescue of beauty in distress douglas dale he is over head and ears in love with the austrian widow and will lend her the money she wants i shall go at once to madame Dursky and give her a few hints as to her line of conduct there was a pause during which the baronet seemed to be thinking deeply do you think that a wise course he asked at last do i think what course wise demanded his friend the line of conduct you propose you say douglas is in love with paulina 
and I myself have seen enough to convince me that you are right. If he is in love with her, he is just the man to sacrifice every other consideration for her sake. What if he should marry her? Would not that be a bad lookout for us?' "'You are a fool, Reginald Eversleigh,' cried Victor contemptuously. "'You ought to know me better than to fear my discretion. Douglas Dale loves Paulina Dursky, and is the very man to sacrifice all worldly interests for her sake.' the man to marry her, even were she more unworthy of his love than she is. But he never will marry her, notwithstanding. How will you prevent such a marriage? That is my secret. Depend upon it, I will prevent it. You remember our compact, the night we met at Frimley? I do, answered Reginald, in a voice that was scarcely above a whisper. Very well. I will be true to my part of that compact, depend upon it. Before this newborn year is out, you shall be a rich man. I have need of wealth, Victor, replied the baronet eagerly. I have bitter need of it. There are men who can endure poverty, but I am not one of them. If my position does not change speedily, I may find myself branded with the stigma of dishonor, an outlaw from society. I must be rich at any cost, at any cost, Victor. "'You have told me that before,' answered the Frenchman coolly, "'and I have promised that you shall be rich. "'But, if I am to keep my promise, "'you must submit yourself with unquestioning faith to my guidance. "'If the path we must tread together is a dark one, "'tread it blindly. "'The end will be success. "'And now, tell me when you expect to see Douglas Dale in London.' "'Sir Reginald explained his cousin's plans, "'and after a brief conversation left the cottage.' He heard Mrs. Carrington's birds twittering in the cold January sunshine, and a passing glimpse through the open doorway of the drawing-room revealed to him the exquisite neatness and purity of the apartment, which even at this season was adorned with a few flowers. Strange, he thought to himself as he left the house. Any stranger entering that abode would imagine it the very shrine of domestic peace and simple happiness, and yet it is inhabited by a fiend. He went back to town. He dined alone in his dingy lodging, scarcely daring to show himself at his club. Lord Caversham had spoken so plainly, and had no doubt spoken to others still more plainly. Reginald Eversleigh's face grew hot with shame as he remembered the insults he had been obliged to endure with pretended unconsciousness. He feared to encounter other men who also had been losers at Hilton House, and who might speak as significantly as the Viscount had spoken. This man, who violated the laws of heaven and earth with little terror of the divine vengeance, feared above all to be cut by the men of his set. This is the slavery which the man of fashion creates for himself. These are the fetters which such men as Reginald Eversleigh forge for their own souls. But, before we trace the progress of Sir Reginald from step to step in this terrible career, we must once more revert to the strange visitors at Frimley. Jane Payland by no means approved of passing Christmas Day in the uninteresting seclusion of a country inn, with nothing more festive to look forward to than a specially ordered but lonely dinner, and nothing to divert her thoughts but the rural spectacle afforded by the inn-yard. As to going out for a walk in such weather, she would not have thought of such a thing, even if she had any one to walk out with, and to go alone, no. Jane Payland had no fancy for amusement of that order. 
The day had been particularly dreary to the lady's maid, because the lady had been busily engaged in affairs of which she had no cognizance, and this ignorance, not a little exasperating even in town, became well-nigh intolerable to her in the weariness, the idleness, and the dullness of Frimley. When Lady Eversleigh went out in the dark evening, accompanied by the mysterious personage in whom Jane Payland had recognized their fellow-lodger, the amazement which she experienced produced an agreeable variety in her sensations, and the fact that the man with the vulture-like beak carried a carpet-bag intensified her surprise. "'Now I'm almost sure she is something to him, and she has come down here with him to see her people,' said Jane Payland to herself, as she sat desolately by the fire in her mistress's room, a well-thumbed novel lying neglected on her knee. "'And she's mean enough to be ashamed of them.' "'Well, I don't think I should be that of my own flesh and blood, "'if I was ever so great and so grand. "'I suppose the bag is full of presents. "'I'm sure she might have told me "'if it was clothes she was going to give away. "'I shouldn't have grudged them to the poor things.' "'Grumbling a good deal, wondering more, and feasting a little, "'Jane Payland got through the time until her mistress returned. "'But for all her grumbling and all her suspicion,' The girl was daily growing more and more attached to her mistress, and her respect was increasing with her liking. Lady Eversleigh returned to the inn alone late on that dismal Christmas night, and she looked worn, troubled, and weary. After a few kind words to Jane Payland, she dismissed the girl and went to bed, very tired and heartsick. "'How am I to prove it?' she asked herself as she lay wearily awake. "'How am I to prove it?' In my borrowed character I am suspected. In my own I should not be believed, or even listened to for a moment. He is a good man, that Lionel Dale, and he is doomed, I fear. On the morning of the 26th, Mr. Andrew Larkspur had another long, private conference with Lady Eversleigh, the immediate result of which was his setting out, mounted on the stout pony which we have seen in difficulties in a previous chapter and vainly endeavouring to come up with Lionel Dale at the hunt. When Mr. Andrew Larkspur arrived at the melancholy conviction that his errand was a useless one, and that he must only return to Frimley and concert with Lady Eversleigh a new plan of action, he also became aware that he was more hurt and shaken by his fall than he had at first supposed. When he reached Frimley, he felt exceedingly sick and weak. Queer, he expressed it and was constrained to tell his anxious and unhappy client that he must go away and rest if he hoped to be fit for anything in the evening, or on the next day. "'I will see Mr. Dale to-night, if he and I are both alive,' said Mr. Larkspur. "'But if he was there before me, I could not say a word to him now. I do not mean to say I have not had a hurt or two in the course of my life before now, but I never was so regularly deadbeat, and that's the truth.' Thus it happened that the acute Mr. Larkspur was hors de combat, just at the time when his acuteness would have found most employment. And thus Lady Eversleigh's project of vengeance received unconsciously the first check. The game of reprisals was indeed destined to be played, but not by her. Providence would do that in time, in the long run. Meanwhile, she strove after her own fashion to become the executor of its decrees. The news of Lionel Dale's sudden disappearance 
and the alarm to which it gave rise, reached the little town of Frimley in due course, but it was slow to reach the lonely lady at the inn. Lady Eversleigh had taken counsel with herself after Mr. Larkspur had left her, and had come to the determination that she would tell Lionel Dale the whole truth. She resolved to lay before him a full statement of all the circumstances of her life, to reveal all she knew, and all she suspected concerning Sir Reginald Eversleigh, and to tell him of Carrington's presence in her neighbourhood, as well as the designs which she believed him to cherish. She told herself that her dead husband's kinsman could scarcely refuse to believe her statement, when she reminded him that she had no object to serve in this revelation, but the object of truth and respect for her husband's memory, when he, Lionel Dale, could have rehabilitated her in public opinion by taking his place beside her, he had not done so. It was too late now. No advance on his part could undo that which had been done, and he could not therefore think that in taking this step she was trying to curry favour with him in order to further her own interest. After debating the question for some time, she resolved to write a letter which Larkspur could carry to the rectory. A great deal of time was consumed by Lady Eversleigh in writing this letter, and the darkness had fallen long before it was finished. When she rang for lights, she took no notice of the person who brought them, and she directed that her dinner should not be served until she rang for it. Thus, no interruption of her task occurred until Mr. Larkspur, looking very little the better for his rest and refreshment, presented himself before her. Lady Eversleigh was just beginning to tell him what she had done, when he interrupted her by saying, in a tone which would have astonished any of his intimates, for there was a touch of real feeling in it, apart from considerations of business, I am afraid we're too late. I'm very much afraid Carrington has been one too many for us, and has done the trick. What do you mean? asked Lady Eversleigh, rising in extreme agitation and turning deadly pale. "'Has any harm come to Lionel Dale?' Then Mr. Andrew Larkspur told Lady Eversleigh the report which had reached the town, and of whose truth a secret instinct assured them both only too completely. They were indeed powerless now. The enemy had been too strong, too subtle, and too quick for them. Mr. Larkspur did not remain long with Lady Eversleigh, but having counselled her to keep silence on the subject— to ask no questions of any one, and to preserve the letter she had written, which Mr. Larkspur, for reasons of his own, was anxious to see, he left her and set off for the rectory. He reached his destination before the return of the party who had gone to search for the missing man. He mingled freely, almost unnoticed, with the servants and the villagers who had crowded about the house and lodges, and all he heard confirmed him in his belief that the worst had happened that Lionel Dale had indeed come by his death, either through the successful contrivance of Carrington, or by an extraordinary accident, coincident with his enemy's fell designs. Mr. Larkspur asked a great many questions of several persons that night, and, as talking to a stranger, helped the watchers and loiterers over some of the time they had to drag through until the genuine apprehension of some, and the curiosity of others, should be realized or satisfied, he met with no rebuffs. But, on the other hand, neither did he obtain any information of value. 
No stranger had been seen to join the hunt that day, or noticed lurking about Hallgrove that morning, and Mr. Larkspur's own reliable eyes had assured him that Carrington was not among the recipients of the rector's hospitality on Christmas Day. The footman, who had directed the unknown visitor, by the way past the stables to the lower road, did not remember that circumstance, and so it did not come to Mr. Larkspur's knowledge. When the party who had led the search for Lionel Dale returned to the rectory, and the worst was known, Mr. Larkspur went away, after having arranged with a small boy, who did odd jobs for the gardener at Hallgrove, that, if the body was brought home in the morning, he should go over to Frimley on consideration of half a crown, and inquire at the inn for Mr. Bennet. "'It's no good thinking about what's to be done till the body's found, and the inquest settled,' thought Mr. Larkspur. "'I don't think anything can be done then, but it's clear there's no use in thinking about it to-night.' "'So I shall just tell my lady so, and get to bed. "'Confound that pony!' "'At a reasonably early hour on the following morning, "'the juvenile messenger arrived from Hallgrove, "'and, on inquiring for Mr. Bennet, "'was ushered into the presence of Mr. Larkspur. "'The intelligence he brought was brief but important. "'The rector's body had been found, much disfigured. "'He had struck against a tree, the doctor said, "'in falling into the river,' and been killed by the blow as well as drowned added the boy with some appreciation of the additional piquancy of the circumstance he was laid out in the library the fine folks were gone or going except squire mordaunt and sir reginald the rector's cousin mr douglas took on about it dreadfully the bay horse had come home with his saddle wet but he was not hurt or cut about as the boy knew of this was all the boy had to tell Mr. Larkspur dismissed the messenger, having faithfully paid him the stipulated half-crown, and immediately sought the presence of Lady Eversleigh. The realization of all her fears shocked her deeply, and in the solemnity of the dread event which had occurred she almost lost sight of her own purpose. It seemed swallowed up in a calamity so appalling. But Mr. Larkspur was of a tougher and more practical temperament, he lost no time in setting before his client the state of the case as regarded herself, and the purpose with which she had gone to Frimley, now rendered futile. Mr. Larkspur entertained no doubt that Carrington had been in some way accessory to the death of Lionel Dale, but circumstances had so favoured the criminal that it would be impossible to prove his crime. "'If I told you all I know about the horse and about the man,' said Mr. Larkspur, "'what good would it do?' The man bought a horse very like Mr. Dale's, and he rode away from here mounted on that horse, on the same day that Mr. Dale was drowned. I believe he changed the horses in Mr. Dale's stable, but there's not a tittle of proof of it, and how he contrived the thing I cannot undertake to say, for no mortal saw him at the rectory or at the meet, and the horse that every one would be prepared to swear was the horse that Mr. Dale rode is safe at home at the rectory now having evidently been in the river. Seeing we can't prove the matter, it's my opinion we'd better not meddle with it, more particularly as nothing that we can prove will do Sir Reginald Eversleigh any harm, and if either of this precious pair of rascals is to escape, you don't want it to be him. Oh, no, no, said Lady Eversleigh, he is so much worse than the other, as his added cowardice makes him. Just so. Well, then, 
"'If you want to punish him and his agent, "'this is certainly not the opportunity. "'Next to winning, there's nothing like thoroughly understanding "'and acknowledging what you've lost, "'and we have lost this game beyond all question. "'Let us see now if we cannot win the next. "'If I understand the business right, "'Mr. Douglas Dale is his brother's heir?' "'Yes,' said Lady Eversleigh. "'His life only now stands between Sir Reginald and the fortune. "'Then he will take that life by Carrington's agency, "'as I believe he has taken Lionel Dale's,' said Mr. Larkspur. "'And my idea is that the proper way to prevent him "'is to go away from this place, where no good is to be done, "'and where any movement will only defeat our purpose "'by putting him on his guard, letting him know he is watched, "'forewarned, forearmed, you know.' "'and set ourselves to watch Carrington in London.' "'Why, in London? "'How do you know he's there?' "'Mr. Larkspur smiled. "'Lord bless your innocence,' he replied. "'How do I know it? "'Why, ain't London the natural place for him to be in? "'Ain't London the place where everyone that has done a successful trick "'goes to enjoy it, "'and everyone that has missed his tip goes to hide himself? "'I'll take my Davy, though it's a thing I don't like doing in general,' "'that Carrington's back in town, living with his mother, as right as a trivet.' "'So Lady Eversleigh and Jane Palin travelled up to town again, "'and took up their old quarters, and Mr. Larkspur returned, "'and resumed his room and his accustomed habits. "'But before he had been many hours in London, "'he had ascertained by the evidence of his own eyes "'that Victor Carrington was, as he had predicted, in town, "'living with his mother, and— as right as a trivet. End of chapter 24, part 2.